Uh, before we jump into uh, our series, our third week in our countercultural series and this text, um, I just want to highlight two uh, adoptions. Uh, the first is adoption of college students, and I'll put that in quotes. All right, we've got about 30 in second service, about 30 college students sit down here. Uh, they love to eat. They've been over to our house multiple times to eat. They're great kids, wonderful students. Uh, and what we've done in the years past, and we'll do again this year, is we, we adopt them, right? And so uh, what we're asking you, if you're a family or an individual or community group here at the well, is to adopt one of these students. Uh, we've got uh, a job description in the back of the welcome table. It's super simple. Uh, you basically welcome them into your home uh, for food and for uh, kind of just hanging out with you and your family. And then, you know, when it's time for like uh, end of year finals or things like that, you're aware of that and you send them notes and gifts and that kind of stuff. So uh, please uh, pick up one of those job descriptions. You can sign up to be a family who then adopts a college student. Also, if you're a college student here uh, at first service, uh, most of you are second service, uh, you can sign up in the back as well to be adopted, okay? So uh, that is our first adoption. The second is an actual adoption. A couple weeks back, we had the Distolfo share. Uh, they were sharing about Baby S. And Baby S has been living in their home for two years in the foster system. They've been caring for Baby S since birth, basically. Uh, and then it looked like um, they were going to lose this child uh, to what also looked like a very kind of unsafe, unstable situation. And uh, I just want you to hear from them uh, what happened. Hey, everyone. Um, first off, we just want to say thank you all so, so much. We are so grateful for all the people who reached out to encourage us and just let us know that they were praying for us. Um, we wanted to share some really wonderful news. Um, S's case went back to court, and um, the judge decided that it would be in his best interest to remain in our family and to be adopted by us. Um, we are still shocked and just so excited to get to um, call this boy our son forever and, yeah, to share a last name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really grateful that, I mean, it was ultimately the Lord who saw So many of you and, and of us, and we're just really grateful for you all and the way you've served us and loved us and cared for us. Yeah. Thanks. Can clap for that. Um, you know, praise God. Uh, and you know, I talked with Kevin uh, this past week, and, and he highlighted. Here's what he highlighted: the joy that they are feeling uh, over the gospel uh, coming into this situation to care for this baby and to pre protect and care this for this baby also highlighted the brokenness of our world, right? And their sadness over the situation of this child's family and what even made this necessary. And I just want to say, man, praise God that he meets us in those just super sad but also joyful moments to do his work and work out his purposes to care for little kids who are often overlooked and, and to hopefully also, and Kevin and Jeannie are praying for, praying for the restoration of this family, this marriage, and that, that they would come to worship and know the living and true God as well. So thank you, church, for walking with them in this. Uh, what a joy it is to see how the Lord uh, worked this out uh, to care for this child. Now let's get into 1 Thessalonians in our countercultural series. Um, 
we have said and, and where we've been the past two weeks is, is that we want to be a people uh, who swim upstream. Uh, we want to go uh, across the current uh, to live a countercultural life. We saw Paul and Silas and Timothy, they came into Thessalonica, they shared the good news of the gospel, and in about three weeks, a church sprung up. And this church sprung up in such a way that kind of the whole surrounding area, Macedonia and Achaia, uh, all started kind of shouting about what an amazing new community this was, this new church in Thessalonica. And they're giving even God praise for the work that was being done. And, and what we saw is that they were a people who swam against the current. The themes of Thessalonica and 1 Thessalonians highlight this. They lived to please God and not men. And they lived with the end in mind. That, that the end was near, but it wasn't yet here. So they were going to spend every minute for eternal purposes knowing that Jesus was returning. And that idea of living to please the Lord and living with the end in mind uh, set them on this trajectory of living a countercultural life. You know who I think this might be hardest for, this countercultural Christianity? Our kids. I think this kind of swimming upstream sort of life, it might be hardest for our kids. I talked to a parent of a first grader uh, who, who said in, in his first grade class, a child comes up to him, they're talking about where they want to eat, where they like eating, and, and the one kid, her kid, says, I like Chick-fil-A. And, and then uh, the other kid says, well, you must be a homophobe. Now, do you think that little first grader who knows this kind of Christian faith too, right, wants to let on that he's a Christian? Like all the baggage that comes along in our culture, in our time, in this place with being a Christian... Even the perceived understanding of who a Christian is and, and how uh, opposite that is to the culture and the schools that our kids are growing up in. There's a couple resources I want to highlight. One is Mama Bear Apologetics. Actually, a whole bunch of uh, gals are doing some Mama Bear Apologetics now in a Thrive class downstairs. The other is this. Ten questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity because our kids are swimming upstream in their schools by Rebecca McLaughlin. Listen to what she says on page 20. We're reading this with our kids. It's been a joy. Actually, I'm learning a ton in it. Many of my friends think Christianity is against the things they care about the most. My friends care about racial justice, and they see the ways in which Christians have engaged in slavery and racism, and they assume that Christianity is against racial justice. My friends here, Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God, and they think it's arrogant and offensive to those who are raised with other religious beliefs. My friends think people should be able to date and marry whomever they want, but Christianity says it's not okay to marry someone of the same sex. My friends are excited by the discoveries of science, and they think that believing in a creator God is the opposite of believing in science. My friends believe that women are equal to men, and they think Christianity puts women down. My friends see all the pain and the suffering in the world, and they think there couldn't be a loving God in charge. When we look more closely at each of these concerns, our view of Christianity might change as well. 
Our kids are swimming upstream. We're swimming upstream. That's why we're doing this series. How do we swim upstream? Uh, what's it look like to swim upstream? What's a faith that swims upstream and honors the Lord and loves people generously, yet is so abnormal? What's it look like? And so, uh, you know, maybe you picked up a First Thessalonians journal. I, I'm encouraging everyone to bring their Bible, maybe snag one of these journals, take notes. Uh, everyone can snag a countercultural uh, study guide. This is kind of how to spend time in the scriptures on your own and along with your groups. You can get these online or in the back. Online, they're at the media tab and then resources. And lastly, we've said, man, snag a Bible. Buy a good Bible. Here's a good one, the ESV Study Bible. Uh, snag it and get it into the scriptures. Why? Because we are people who need to know our God in this time. And, and as we know him, we'll be shaped by him, and we will live a countercultural, abnormal life, but we will live it for our Lord and King. So let's get into this section that we read earlier, and we're going to just really focus on three verbs, three little words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and following will just be really in verses 9 and 10. In verse 6 he says, uh, You became imitators of us, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord. You, you imitated us when we gave you the gospel of truth, and you received the word in much affliction and with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You were imitating us, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but then you became the imitated. You were living by this new faith, uh, following our example, but then you became the example. You guys are crushing it, he says. You're living a countercultural faith. The imitators have become the imitated, and people are talking about you saying, Wow, what a different community these people are. And it's all centered around three verbs that we find in verses 9 and 10. Three verbs that mark the kind of faith that we long to have as the people of God. Verse 9. For they themselves, those around you, they're shouting about, it. they report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They tell us, what do they tell us? How you turned from idols to God and, and in order to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. You turn to serve and to wait. You're marked by a faith that is countercultural and God-honoring and different than the world. Uh, the first verb is this, you turned. You turned to and you turned from. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols. You turned. It's a, a direction of will shift. Uh, it's a change in the way you are living your life. You, you and I, in Christ, we have turned to God from idols. It's kind of uh, two sides of the same faith coin, right? Jesus will come preaching to people. He'll say, would you have, uh, repent and believe? 
He comes and says, I'm the one you're waiting for. I am the Savior. Would you repent? Would you turn from idols and turn to me, Jesus says? Would you leave the way you were living, leave the things you were living for, and now live for me? Would you make this turn of direction, this this shifting of allegiance? Remember when we looked at the beginning of the Thessalonican story, this uh, small church community that sprung up in Acts chapter 17? In Acts chapter 17, verse 7, uh, the people, as they're seeing this new community rise up and come uh, from nothing to something, they say this, these people serve another king, his name is Jesus. They're not serving Caesar. Uh, See, idols, uh, it's probably helpful if we define them because we are turning from idols to God. Uh, Idols, uh, if we are to define them, would be this. Anything that provides ultimate purpose in your life and has captivated your affection and service. An idol is anything that has kind of taken central role or provides ultimate purpose in your life or my life. And has captivated your affection and your service. Let's see, in the Old Testament, uh, it would be this. Turn from Dagon or the Asherah poles or the idols of Baal and, and serve the living true God, right? Uh, turn from these gods that you would seek uh, for prosperity from or fertility and legacy from. Uh, turn from them and, and seek these things in God. In Thessalonica, you know, it's probably, uh, they can see Mount Olympus from Thessalonica, right? So it's probably the Greek and the Roman gods. Think Zeus and Epaphrodites. And, and, and uh, instead of seeking your welfare and your well-being and to honor and serve them, now turn and serve the living and true God. Or it could have been the imperial cult as well, Claudius the emperor. Roman, right? You're to worship him and give your whole life to him. He can say and do no wrong. He's trying to save the country, so do everything he says. Or maybe you're part of the whole pocket of of Jews in Thessalonica. There's a whole bunch of them, and they're living for this moralism or righteousness through their actions. And, and, And here we say, turn from this and turn to God. Leave your idols, the thing that you are serving for ultimate purpose, security, validation, hope, peace, life, and it's captivated your affections. You love this thing. You, You serve it. You give your life. It transforms the way you live and think. Well, how do we diagnose what this is for us? Because this can be our politics, our promotions, or our relationships, or our money. Uh, I learned a lot from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. It's been a great uh, book, and and, uh, he and and Paul David Tripp and others, Eric Geiger, have just been really influential uh, in me thinking in this. And and here is what they say in kind of collaboration about diagnosing your idols. How do you find what's kind of taken central place in your life, giving you ultimate purpose or me ultimate purpose? One, think about your daydreams. Where does your mind wander where, when someone is not telling you where your mind ought to go? The things you long for, you think about it. Or maybe it's your to-do list and kind of getting after this or that because it's so important to you, right? But then also think about your nightmares, right? If I didn't get this, my life would hardly be worth living. If I don't get this, then my life will hardly be worth living. Think about your daydreams, your nightmares. Also think about your emotions, particularly the disparity of your emotions. 
uh, when uh, they're disproportionate to the thing that occurs or doesn't occur. Like, uh, right, your, your kid gets a great grade and you're like, yes, woohoo! Uh, but then they get a poor grade and you're like, what are you doing? A disparity of emotions that might tip us off to, maybe this isn't about my kid's grade, but this is more about me and something I need for validation. Look for the disparity of your emotions. If I don't get this promotion, if I do not get it, my life crumbles. Then think about your resources, right, to diagnose your idol. So where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money, your effort? Over and over, and it keeps growing more money, more time, more effort. Even so much that as you expend your resources in this place, maybe it's your work that everything else shrinks and crumbles and falls apart. Your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your friendships, your fun, your joy. And then lastly, think about your disobedience. Where are you willing to fudge a little? You know the Lord wants you to kind of be honest uh, in your taxes, but if you just fudge a little, you could have a bit more money because if you have a bit more money, then you have a bit more security. Right? Diagnose our idols, our daydreams, our nightmares, the disparity of emotions, our resources, and our disobedience. And, and then dig a bit deeper. Keep asking the question, why? Why do I do this or that? Why do I feel this way or that? To get to our idols, what we must turn from, we have to keep asking why. Because our idols are all different, even if they're kind of focused on the same kind of stuff or relationships or things, right? Right? Think about your work. It's an easy one to do, right? If you're giving all of yourself to your work to a place that, that you're seeing the rest of your life crumble, right? It might be because you say, I need a certain paycheck or promotion so that I can have security. And I'm, I'm seeking security. The, the work is the place, the idol I, I'm looking at, but really the idols below it in security that I'm seeking in my work. But someone else over here with their might work, work might be uh, seeking this promotion. Why? Because then they can show their power off and their accomplishment and say, see, I'm worth something. And validation is below their work. It's not security for them. It's validation. I, I, I have made something out of myself. Dad never said I would, but I have. This can happen in your dating relationships. You might be seeking embrace and approval, or you might be seeking security. This can happen with your kids. And you might be seeking control and, and validation by being able to work your plan there. It's going to happen all over our lives for different reasons. This might even happen with the cause you're living for. It's below and, and under the things that kind of are at the surface. It's helpful then to think about what are the root idols. What are the things, the summary kind of things that are below so much of the stuff we chase after? Uh, root idols, I think, can be summarized in these four areas. Again, uh, Keller, Tripp, Geiger, and others have been helpful in this. Uh, power. Power is a bucket we often fall into for our idolatry. I have longing for influence and recognition, right? Validation. 
leaving a legacy, chasing and bringing about the greatest of causes. Or it might be control, longing for stability and a plan and security to, to work out the way you want it to work out. And if, if I could just have it work out the way I want, then it will be, I'll be secure, or they'll be secure. Or it might be comfort, longing for pleasure and rest. If I could just get this stuff or that thing, man, then I'd be satisfied. I'd have the pleasure I need, the rest I need, the peace I need. Or maybe it's approval, longing to be accepted or desired, embrace, right? Often in relationships. See, the power of an idol is that it promises something in the future. The power of an idol is that it promises something in the future. It's why uh, though an idol has nothing, it has nothing, no power, no ability to provide. It promises something uh, to the point that you give it everything. See, an idol has nothing, but it promises something in the future, so we give it everything, and it sucks the life out of us. So why do we keep doing this? Because it promises something in the future, and it gives us just a little taste of it in the present. I love this verse in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. Like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool keeps coming back to his folly. Why do I keep going to my bank account for security? Why do I keep going to this destructive relationship for embrace? Well, because it gives just enough each time to keep me coming back. And it promises more while it sucks away everything. Like a dog returns to his vomit, it's not crystal clear, refreshing water, quenching the thirst, but it gives just a little bit enough. And that's disgusting. Yeah, I know that is disgusting. So we turn from our idols to God, but, but not, not just to God, but to serve the living and the true God. We turn from idols to God in order to what? To serve the living and the true God. To serve. The root word here is doulos, slave or servant. To give yourself wholly over, to place your allegiance to him, to put yourself under, to submit to him, to say, I want all of you. You have my full affection. You have my full service. I belong to you. Why? Because you are the living and true God. Living that you are powerful and alive. Uh, where idols are impotent, you are powerful. Where idols are dead, you are alive. I can have relationship with you, the living God, and it is a relationship of your love and benevolence and power and might to transform and reconstruct my whole life. And you are the true God. True is an authentic. There's different Greek words for true, and this is the one for authentic, not counterfeit. The authentic God, the real God, the living God who is powerful, mighty, in a relationship with us. The contrast between idols and the true and living God is a stark one. It's a vital one. It's a critical one for our lives. I just want to, and if you have your Bibles, and I'd again recommend you bring your Bible every Sunday that we would learn from the Scriptures together. 
The contrast is a stark and vital one. We're going to go through a whole bunch of passages here slowly, but they're just wonderful stories of the contrast of idolatry. The first one is in Isaiah 44. Go to Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, we read this as a carpenter is making an idol to be worshipped. Isaiah 44, verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, trees. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and he lets it grow strong and among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it. He warms himself. He kindles a fire. He bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol, and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat and he roasts it. He's satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol. He falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Do you see how ridiculous it is what we do with the created things that God has given us? As we turn them into the creator himself, the one where we might find security and rest and validation. When we say, if I could just get this out of my kid's life, then I'd be satisfied. If I could just get this job, then I'm this spouse or that kid. It says it's so foolish to expect out of a created thing something that only the creator can give. Why would we worship it like fools returning to our own vomit? How about this one in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 4? This is the Philistine god Dagon uh, of prosperity. Uh, we'll worship him for prosperity. Uh, I love what's happened here. Um, the Philistines have captured the ark, verse 1 of chapter 5 in 1 Samuel says. They've captured the ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, their idol, and sat it up besides Dagon. So you've got the ark, which is where the living God dwells, sitting next to Dagon, this idol. And watch what happens. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Dagon had fallen on his face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, kind of worshiping the one true God. So they took Dagon, oh shoot, and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut, on the, cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. Like you would do to uh, an enemy king, his head, his arms are chopped off, and it's all that's left. And, and, and the living, true God says, why would you worship anything else for prosperity or security or satisfaction? It will never do. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, this is Elijah. He is gathering their prophets of Baal, another idol. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, I love this, what he says to them. How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. 
But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. And then they do this amazing thing where uh, they create their offering to Baal, and, and, and the word shows up again. They're, they're limping around the altar they'd made, and, and, and at noon, Elijah mocks them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's missing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Nothing's happening. Because our idols are powerless to provide what they promise to provide. No one answered. No one paid attention. The text says. And then Elijah, he, he, he covers the offering in water and douses it three times. And then he calls to the Lord just simply. And the Lord comes down and... The living and true God acts in might. Uh, maybe a more modern day example would do us well. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. A young ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young rich ruler said this, all these things I've kept from my youth. He's got all the commandments down, right? Except for the first one, idolatry. And Jesus heard this. He said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when this man heard these things, he became very sad, for he's extremely rich. He had made his ultimate pleasure, the center of his life, his wealth and security. Or maybe it was his validation that he was chasing. And the Lord says, man, woe to you if you live this way. He says this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, you've even made your morality, your religiosity, your idol. Woe to you. Live for anything else, and it is an idol. But if we serve our one true master, we will find life and satisfaction, the things we long for in our idols. The first command puts it simply, right? Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, after saying, The Lord is the one who rescued us out of Egypt. He said, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a, a carved image in any likeness or anything in heaven above. And he says, basically, uh, turn from idols to serve me, the one true living God. And then everything else will flow out of it. You won't commit adultery. Why? Because you have found in the Lord your deepest satisfaction and embrace. You weren't looking for it ever in your wife. And when she didn't give it to you, you had to find it somewhere else. No, you found it in the Lord first. It's a definitive and declared turn of allegiance, as Romans chapter 10 will say. Confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead and I'll be saved, you'll be saved. He is my Lord, we declare. I will serve you only. This means, however, as he is our master, then we'll never fit into any camp fully. It'll always be an upstream countercultural life. 
you may have, uh, in this kind of context, in this place, right, you may have found yourself with no home because here our ideologies have become our idols. So you might now be saying, I don't fit in the conservative camp anymore. Now, I thought the conservative camp was all about this or that, but now I look at race and I look at how refugees are treated and I look at Christian nationalism and storming the Capitol with, with crosses and, and uh, Confederate flags at the same time. And I say, I don't fit there anymore. Or you might have uh, thought, man, I thought I fit in the progressive camp, but now when I think about abortion and I think about sexuality, I don't fit there anymore. See, if, if we serve the one true living God, we don't fit anywhere. Right? Whether it's Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or this or that or defund the media or defend the police, we don't fit. Because we serve the one true God, not some ideology where we've just taken the Kool-Aid and swallowed it down and said, shape every part of my life. No, our God shapes our lives. What do we do? We wait then for Jesus. We wait. The things we long for, the promises of tomorrow, shape our today, right? Everything we long for, we wait for, we find then in Christ who is returning. This is his son, not money, not promotion, not politics, not my own son, not my own daughter. But he's the one I'm waiting for, for security and validation and, and hope and purpose and life. Where is he coming? From heaven, where he lives and he reigns, he rules as king, he's mighty, he's powerful, he's not impotent like this idol I serve today. He's returning to what? To rescue us from the wrath that is to come, the shrapnel of a life serving other gods, counterfeit gods, and the shrapnel of a life that falls apart in all of eternity, separated from our one true God. Would we wait on other gods? Would we find our life, our sustenance in other gods? No, because Psalm 16, verses 4 to 11 says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. See, idols are a sponge. Keep chasing life in your children and watch them suck the life out of you. If they are your hope, if they are your validation, they will suck the life out of you. Keep chasing uh, life in your relationships or your promotions or your political ideologies. It will suck the life out of you. You'll have to give it more and more. Your sorrows will multiply. But, the psalm says, you make known to me the path of life. You, God, in your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures evermore. I will wait for you. I will serve you. Where these other idols say, live for power, I will live in your power, Jesus. Where they say, take control of your life, we say, I hand you control of my life. When they say, I'll give you comfort and pleasure, serve me, we say, you are my pleasure, you are my comfort. When they say, Come to me for embrace and community and to be loved. Uh, the Lord says, run to me and you'll find fullness of love and embrace that never ends and faithfulness like you've never experienced. Wait for Jesus, he says. Serve him. Long for him. Wait for him. So diagnose your own idols. Where are you waiting, longing, serving your daydreams, your nightmares, your emotions, your resources, your disobedience? 
I'd have two. These would be my two idols, and unfortunately, they'd probably come in this order, to my shame. Church. If we could plant more community groups, see the gospel go out and, and cluster them together to plant more churches, man, wouldn't that be a legacy in my most sinfulness, right? Wouldn't that prove self-validation, who I am and I'm worthy? Or my kids and my family, wouldn't it be amazing if my sons and my daughters went on to have lives like this? Wouldn't it show I'm a great dad? And I love them too, right? Like maybe even sometimes love them more than I love my God. In Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's been waiting for his son. He's like, man, when will I get a son? The Lord finally gives him one, Isaac. He's an amazing little kid, I bet. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, Lord. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. So Abraham, he raises early in the morning, saddles up his donkey, takes two of his young men with him. He takes a whole pile of sticks to create this altar and offer his son as a living sacrifice to the Lord. It's the third day, and Abraham lifts up his eyes. He sees the place from afar. Verse 5, Abraham said to this young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and worship. You see it? Worship my God who has my soul, affection, and all of my service. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Jesus said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. Abraham, verse 10, reaches out his hand and he took a knife about to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, don't lay a hand on that boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God and have not withheld even your son, your only son from me. Man, I, can you imagine walking up the mountain with Leo, my last little son. And the Lord cries out, you serve me first. And it, it's not malicious when the Lord says it. It's benevolent. Because he's asking us to orient our whole lives around where only our worship should be first and foremost. And then everything to which we have been looking to find life will then come to life. You try and find life in your kids, you'll find death. You try and find life in your work, you'll find death. Life in your spouse, you'll find death. But when you worship the one and true God, you will find life there. Because you'll, you'll, you won't need them anymore. But you'll be able to give yourself fully and freely to them in the love of the Lord. 
Why? Because God himself gave his one and only son, the son whom he loves for us to make us sons and daughters. Why would we want to live with this faith? Because first, he is worthy. He's our savior who saved us from the wrath of today and the wrath to come. How? By the death of his son. And why would we then want to worship him, not other things? Because these other things will find new life when we worship him fully and first. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, would you remember what he's done for us in his son, our savior? And would you turn from anything else you're worshiping and living for and turn to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son who's coming from heaven to save us from the wrath to come? Come and rejoice over who he is and what he's done. If you're not a believer this morning, would you just pray by faith? Make that definitive turn to to proclaim him Lord and Savior. To find in him security, validation, comfort, life to the full. And live for him in every other area of your life. Let's take and eat and remember who our Savior is and what he's done for us. Worship him.